Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful day that you have given us today. And thank you, Father, each year for the opportunity to remember that most important sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And we celebrate, Father, not only your resurrection by your Son in a new life, but we also remember and make note of his death. For without the death, Father, there's no forgiveness of sin. And without the resurrection of life, there is no hope for our own life eternal. And we thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate it with the variety of gifts that you've given to us in this fellowship from the many men and women who have participated in the service already and for many others who are working behind the scenes. It is, in fact, Father, a team sport as you give your church the opportunity to glorify your name through the, the bounty of gifts and services that you make available through us. And I ask, Lord, that I would also participate in that way through my gift and teaching, that you would make it clear what I am to say and that those who hear, Father, would be guided by your spirit to listen as from you and not from a man. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as John proclaimed so aptly in the music, the Lord is risen and has been for quite a while now. We just remember it, of course, on this day. This is the week of Passover, and that's the reason why Easter falls on this week. It is a remembrance of the fact that Christ died on the Passover week. He had a passion or a, a suffering that we remember. He had a death, and then three days later he resurrected. And we take this Sunday every year to remember that because it's an opportunity for us to understand the foundations of our faith. As I mentioned in the prayer, without his death, there's no hope for forgiveness of sin. So we need to remember the death of Christ as a part of this day. But without his resurrection from death, back to life as the witnesses testified, we'd also have no reason to think that his promise to us of eternal life could actually be fulfilled, that he has the power to do what he says. But when he raised himself from the dead, he proved he had the power of life over death. So it was about 2,000 years ago that Jesus, who was God in the form of man, voluntarily placed himself on a cross, a cross reserved for criminals, one for traitors in the Roman justice system. And he permitted the Romans to crucify him. And as we probably remember from reciting this in some of the various Christian traditions, he suffered, died, and was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Many of you could repeat those words with me. Jesus himself talked about this truth even before he died to the disciples. In Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, Jesus, as he speaks to the disciples following his resurrection, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. He reminds them that he said these things even before he died, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus, it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from dead the third day. That storyline is really simple. It's profound. It's the basis for our own salvation. I dare say if we had the opportunity to express it to somebody who was curious about what makes a Christian or what is it you believe, we could explain that in 10 seconds. Just the fact of his life and suffering and death and resurrection. God the Son, voluntarily leaving his place of authority in the heaven, coming down to be a man on earth, suffering in our place, and dying so that we would have eternity. The just dying for the unjust. The Bible calls this substitution of him for us a fancy word. It's called propitiation. And it's easy to marvel at what propitiation allows for and all that it means and, and to understand it in simple terms. But I have found in the course of my ministry that for many Christians, there are questions that arise around the notion of propitiation. You may have seen some in the unbelieving world, some atheists 
who have written that the concept that God would send his own son and kill his son in our place is cruel. It's unconscionable. What kind of God would kill his own son? It makes God out to be evil for the fact that he produces this plan of redemption. And that also, I think, tends to cause some Christians to question, how does it work? And so they ask questions. I've often heard it said there's no such thing as a dumb question. If you've watched a a presidential debate lately, I think you realize that's not a true statement in all cases. But there's a saying that says something like there's no such thing as a dumb question, just dumb people who don't ask the question. Well, that's pretty much my philosophy. There's no wrong question. There's no dumb question. There was a time I remember when a little girl asked her father, where did the human race come from, Daddy? And he answered biblically. He says, God made Adam, he made Eve, they had children, and so from them all mankind came into being. But she wasn't satisfied with that, so two days later she tracked Mom down, and she asked Mom exactly the same question. And Mom answered, well, honey, many years ago there were monkeys, and we developed from monkeys over Millions of years. Now, the girl's totally confused at this point, so she returns to Dad and says, Dad, how is it possible that you told me that the human race came from God making Adam and Eve, but then Mama says that we developed from monkeys? And the father looks at her and says, well, dear, it's very simple. I told you about the origins of my side of the family, and she told you about her side. As I said, there are no dumb questions, but that doesn't mean there aren't dumb answers, and that may have been one. So if today is a day we recognize and celebrate the propitiation of Christ, the substitutionary death of him on our behalf so that we could have eternal life, if that's what this day is about, I'd like to explore two questions that I routinely hear from Christians who are wrestling with this notion and trying to understand it. The first question goes something like this. How does propitiation work? How can Christ's life and his death save us collectively from the wrath of sin. I mean, how can one man paying that price stand in the place for so many? The second question is, if Christ is taking our place by his death, then why, when he descended, as the scriptures tell us, into hell, why didn't he have to spend eternity in hell? Because after all, those who die without having placed their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, without having accepted his sacrifice, they are going into the grave to pay their own debt. They will arrive at their judgment day, as the scripture tells us, and they will be found guilty for their sin, as is the requirement. That's what a just God will do. He applies justice perfectly. And those who have sinned will pay the penalty. They will be in hell for eternity, according to scripture. So if Jesus is taking my place, why did he only have to spend three days, as the Bible tells us? And then he got to come out. You see the questions, right? You see how those are actually legitimate. Let's begin with that first one. What are the basic workings of propitiation? The Apostle John gives us the, the overview in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's love for his children, John says, is best seen in the fact that God did this for us. So when you hear someone suggest reasons for why Jesus came to the earth, they might offer reasons like, oh, he came to be a good model. He came to teach us about God. He came to be a good example. Nonsense. He did those things. 
But that's not why he came. God didn't need to send his own son to earth and have him put on a cross just to teach us a few moral lessons. No, John says he came to be a propitiation. He came to die. He came to be a sacrifice. He came to substitute himself for us. Otherwise, there's no point. There's not many roads to heaven. There's only one. If God had made many roads available, why would he choose to kill his own son as one of those roads? That makes no sense. It was the necessity that his son died that made it the only way. Because all of us have sinned. That's the testimony of Scripture. Wouldn't I love to stand up here and tell you that I'm the exception to the rule? I would, except my wife's in the room. That would very quickly mean I wouldn't be found truthful. John says all of us have sinned. Christ says we have all sinned. And the reason is because we've all been born with a nature, spiritually speaking, a nature that is sinful. I'm always amused by the debate that you'll hear sometimes in the secular world over whether or not men are naturally good or naturally bad. You know the question I'm talking about? Are we born inherently good and then the world corrupts us and turns us bad? Or is it the other way around, as the Bible teaches, that we were born sinful and corrupt from the outset, but that God, by grace, he can transform us into good? I'm amused by that because anyone who's ever raised a child or even been around a two-year-old for about an hour knows the answer to that question already, don't you? The notion that somehow we come out of the womb nice and perfect is fanciful. A simple way to understand the nature of sin is to remember men are not sinners because at some point in our life we chose to sin. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Scripture says we began life with a sinful nature that is offensive to God. And because of that offensive nature we began to act corruptly and sinfully. Another way to say it is, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners as we leave the womb. That's why the Bible says good works do not save us. We have no hope to restore ourselves in a relationship to a holy and just God on the basis of good works. It's because no amount of good works can change your nature. No amount of good works changes who you are spiritually, and it's who you are spiritually. It's our sin nature that separates us from God. Some of us will accomplish more good works than others. We know people who are good people and others who are not so good. And we could probably make a list of the top ten best people in the world and the top ten worst, and we'd probably have very similar lists, I guess depending on who we know. But the problem with good works as a solution to sin, is that we're working on the wrong problem. It's like two men trying to throw rocks from Austin to hit the North Pole. One of them will throw farther than the other, but both of them fall woefully short of the task. Neither of them come close to actually hitting the mark. And the standard for God to allow entrance into his presence is that you match him in holiness and perfection, which is no sin at all. That's the test for entrance into heaven. It's not some scale in the sky where you have to be better than your neighbor. It's not our standard. It's God's standard. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because the standard is the glory of God. So our sin nature leaves us permanently in debt to a holy and just God who will take his payment. Paul tells us now in Ephesians, so if you've gone with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 1. Paul says in Ephesians, and you speaking here to the church, he's speaking to believers as he writes this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And listen, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's Paul recounting to the church where we came from, how we started before we knew the Lord. Paul says that the church used to be children of wrath by their very nature. People, in other words, who by their sin nature justly deserve the wrath of God. I know on an Easter what we want to hear someone tell us from up here is how good we are and how nice we are and how happy we should be. But we cannot take that message and divorce it. From the other side of the coin in Scripture, which is a recognition of just how sinful we are, how far we've fallen from the glory of God, and therefore how far God had to go to restore us through His Son's death. We are in this family by birth that is outside God's pleasure. The family of Adam. You know, just as you and I inherited physical characteristics from our parents, as the movie Lion King says, some of us came out of the shallow end of the gene pool, some of us got a little better... Uh, result maybe, but we all can trace back who we are to our parents physically. Well, the Bible says that that same process also works spiritually in that the nature we have as people coming into the world is one we inherit from our parents. And I don't think it's going to surprise you to find out that your parents were sinful. And because they had a sin nature, they gave it to you. Blame them. But the problem is they get to blame their parents and their parents get to blame their parents. And you know where it all goes back to, right? The first man, Adam, who because of his choice sinned, changing his sin nature and reproduced it through the line of men that came after him. That's how we all ended up where we are. We have a sin nature. We inherit it. We pass it down. You can't escape it, but you can be rescued from it, according to Scripture. Notice that Paul said in the passage I read out of Ephesians that these people he was writing to formally walked In this state of disobedience and wrath formerly. Did that catch your attention? It should have, because if Paul says to a group of Christians, you formerly were children of wrath, you formerly were of disobedience. You'd want to ask, how did they get out of that state? Where did they find the solution? How did they escape? Paul goes forward to say that. Look at chapter two, verse four. He says, but God, I love the way he starts that here. You are in your problem, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. With which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, that's the gospel. I could use more words. In fact, you know I will. But that's the gospel right there. It's not about money. It's not about good works. It's not about being happy. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're not. It's not about your best life now or seven secrets to anything. It is about God, while we were yet his enemies, stepping in and saving us by grace through faith not by works. So though our works do not repair our situation, they cannot reconcile us to God. By grace, he can do that through the substitution of his son in our place. 
And at the moment we accept that sacrifice, God gives us a new spirit. Here's where the change came that Paul described earlier in Ephesians 2. Here's where we become formally sons of disobedience or formally children of wrath. At the moment of faith, we're given a down payment on that future inheritance, Scripture tells us. We're given the indwelling, the literal presence of the Holy Spirit in our bodies. And His Spirit replaces our old nature. And we become children now that can please God because we have a nature now that does no longer trace its origins to Adam. That's been done away with, Paul tells us. We now find our nature traced to Christ by his spirit. This is the meaning of the term born again. The question is, how do I get born again? I've already come out of my mother's womb. Well, that's true. And you're not going back in. The point is, spiritually, what you gained from your parents, God is ready to replace with a new spirit by faith. And that new spirit means, from God's point of view, spiritually, you're a new child. You're born again in a new spirit. From that moment forward, you live as if you were born all anew. Spiritually, you have been. Paul says in Romans 8:14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. It's very common and very understandable, I guess, in the society we live in for people to throw the term around, we are all children of God. I have to tell you, friends, biblically, that's not true. We're all his creatures. We've all been created. The world is his. I know that. But he calls those who are his sons, those who have his spirit and those who have his spirit are those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8:15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, by which we now have a relationship with God, the father. All right. So now to the question, how can the death of Christ accomplish all of this? Well, Paul begins to explain this mystery in Romans 5. That's our second passage, Romans 5. And we'll begin in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, let's think about what Paul just said. He established a simple principle of life. He said, we all die We all die. That's Paul's opening point. The death rate for all human beings is 100%. Last time I checked, it's still 100%. No one escapes death. And the Bible teaches that we all suffer this penalty of physical death because of the sin of one man, Adam. We take death for granted. It's around us everywhere. We can't escape it. Paul says it wasn't always that way. But because one man sinned, he says in Romans 5.12, that led to death entering God's creation. But notice, one man's actions have put the whole world in a state of being, spiritually, so that death is common to all men. Now, you and I take that for granted, right? In fact, we don't even think about it. It never occurs to us to imagine that someone might not die. Not eventually, right? Adam's sin is the cause of that. And because we inherit his sin, we inherit the death that follows. That's such a simple principle, but it explains a lot. If we're willing to accept that reality, the reality that we see around us every day, that men die every day, that everyone dies eventually, if we're willing to accept that, and if we understand its cause is sin, and that cause traces back to one man's decision, then accept that same principle when it comes to your salvation. That's all he's asking. Understand that if one man's sin can lead to your death, then similarly, one man's death can lead to your salvation. 
Paul says in Romans 5.15, just down the chapter a little bit, Romans 5.15, he says, The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, meaning Adam, the many died, that's us, well, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And then look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinner, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Paul's simply expressing the principle here of propitiation based on the precedent that Adam set. That by our acceptance of Christ's death in our place and the receiving of his spirit in place of the one we inherited from Adam, we share in his future instead of in Adam's. It's the same process. God's just reversing it in our hearts spiritually by our faith. And the reason Christ's death can do that is that Christ himself lived a sinless life. What's the cause of death? Sin. If you have no sin, then you have no prospect of death. So what happens when a sinless person dies? It's a conundrum because there's no cause for his death in himself. And so God now is able to take the death of that one and apply it to someone else. Christ didn't need to die for his own sin. So his death now becomes an available payment. I have a friend recently who found himself in a situation where he had been credited twice for the same payment on a utility bill. He noticed that in the next month's statement, he had a credit for exactly the same amount he had paid the month before against the bill. So now he, he's looking at that. And of course, what do you think his dilemma is? Do I say anything? Right. That's the dilemma. In a sense, in a very limited sense, that's how you can conceive Christ's death on the cross. His account with God was zeroed out. He had no debt to pay. He was sinless. Here he dies and he's got a blank check, so to speak. One that God can write for anyone. And God has made through the gospel the offer that any who would choose to take that in place of their own death may have that option. Now, I'm not great with math, but to my way of thinking, that's a good deal. I wouldn't turn that deal down for my utility bill. Why would I turn it down for my eternal salvation? That's the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. You can't work your way into the kind of opportunity God is willing to make by grace alone. And then by our faith, if we accept that, God assigns us credit for Christ's sinless life. But he does more than that. He puts on Christ the guilt of our sin because sin must be judged. You remember years ago with the O.J. Simpson trial? One of the things I think that made people upset in response to how that trial turned out was most people, I think, saw a guilty man getting off free rather than getting the punishment that he deserved. That's not justice, right? By definition, justice is all those who are guilty receive the just penalty for their mistakes for their errors. And likewise, justice would mean every innocent person is always let free. There is no exception to those rules. If you're going to be perfect as a judge, you'd always apply your justice in those ways every time. You'd never get it wrong. You'd never let the guilty free and you'd never convict the wrong guy. That would be perfect. Well, our father in heaven, scripture tells us, cannot sin and cannot go against what is righteous. Well, if he is the judge of his creation, as he says he is, 
then he cannot let the guilty go free. He cannot overlook our sin. And by the same token, he cannot convict you if the payment's been made. If your penalty has been paid, he can't make you pay it a second time. That's not just either. And so Paul says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, his death pays all that we have due for our sin. And if we are willing to accept that payment, we'll never pay it ourselves. So the idea of propitiation is simply this. Christ stood in my place and received the wrath of God while I stand in his place and receive the righteousness that is his. So how does propitiation work? God, by grace, assigns us the righteousness of his son and will do so to anyone who would accept that in their own place. It's just that simple. So if that's how it works, how come Christ didn't have to spend eternity in hell? It's a good question in my mind. First time I ever had somebody ask me that, I had to stop and say, I don't know. I went back to Scripture, and I think I understand why now. The question itself is the problem. It makes a false assumption about the purpose of hell, about the very reason it exists in God's plan. That question assumes that men spend eternity in hell for roughly the same reason we send convicts to prison. That is, that they're paying off a debt. That they're somehow performing restitution for their sin. Now, in the case of prison, yes, that's how prisons work. Convicts are paying off their debt to society, as we say. If that's the way you've conceived of hell, even if you've never used those words exactly, if that's your sense of it, paying off what they owe... Well, then there's the source of the problem, because that's not what hell's about. It's a wrong assumption. But in the case of hell, there's no such option. Remember what we just said a minute ago. Why do good works not bring us to heaven? Because good works cannot erase our sin nature. And it's our sin nature that causes us to be separated from God. Not the things we do, but the person we are. That's what separates us from God. The things we do are just the fruit of who we are. They're just the evidence of who we are. They're not what made us who we are. So if we can't get to heaven by what we do, we can't get out of hell either by what we do or how long we spend there or how uncomfortable it is. Those things aren't changing who we are. And unless we've accepted the free gift of God in grace, he won't give us his spirit. And if he doesn't give us a spirit, we don't change who we are. And if we don't change who we are, we're in eternity for hell because we are sinful in eternity. We are forever who we are. There's never a day God looks upon us and says, welcome you into my presence. You spent enough time there because every day he looks upon us. We're the same sinful person we were the day we showed up. You cannot change who you are spiritually. Only God can do that. So why did Christ even go to hell? Why did he spend even three days there? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, just briefly, Ephesians 4, 8, he says that the mission of Christ included a need to be in hell for a short time, escorting out the Old Testament saints who awaited his resurrection. Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul explains that reference to captives. He says, now this expression he ascended, well, what does it mean? Except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. Christ descended to hell because there were those waiting for him. Those who had died in faith during the Old Testament days. Those who by faith were saved and were due the same eternal glory that would be Christ. But they could not enter into God's presence. They could not enter into the glory that was theirs by faith until the price had been paid for their sin. Until there had been that sacrifice and God knew it was coming. And when it arrived, then he was able to send his son down and collect those waiting. Now, while he had been down there, don't worry, they had not been suffering. Scripture tells us there was a place set aside for them in holding that was of comfort because they were not due punishment. But once he was ready to ascend and he had taken the price for their sin, then they could join him and he cleared that place out. And now there are none down there. All who would die today in faith, Scripture says, are present with the Lord immediately because the sacrifice has been made. So he took our place. He paid our price. He assumed our debt and offers us his gift of righteousness. And then he died to make that possible. He spent a short time in the grave to prove First, that he was who he said he was, that he could go to death and come back to life. He made good use of the time by preaching to those who were waiting for this moment. He led them free when his time to ascend came. He awaits for the day his father directs him to return to this earth. And when he returns for the church, we will join him whether we have died or whether we are still alive. All of this is made possible by simply our faith in the gift that God makes available. This is Easter. This is the day we celebrate what we've been given, this profound storyline. Let's let Easter be the day we reflect on a sacrifice God made to the death of his beloved son so that you and I wouldn't have to make the same sacrifice ourselves. We'll go to communion here briefly. Let's go to prayer first and then finish our our day. Father, we teach in this place, we try to bring the truth of what you have for us into the open and we declare it plainly. But we take a day like this, Father, to go back to the basics, to the foundation of who we are in Christ. Because if we can't have this day set aside for that purpose, what what day could we use? And you bring among us, Father, the family and friends and visitors that we have and our family who is here regularly. And you give us all the attentiveness and the time to listen to this message. And I have to I have to believe, Father, that because you've made this available, this time and, and this opportunity, that you set forth some good purpose in it. Perhaps for many of us, Father, it was just the reminder. It was just the chance to remember what it is we believe and how it is we know we are saved and why it is we can rest in Christ. For others, perhaps, Father, as we may have entered into the family of God recently and we're still new and understanding these things, this has been the opportunity for us to to really understand the gospel and to see how it is that Christ's death saves us. Thank you for that, Father. But I'm also praying, Father, that There may be somebody within the sound of my voice here or later listening on a recording who has come face to face for the first time with the truth of the gospel and all the nonsense that others have peddled in the past about what it is to be Christian. Whatever may have been said, all that's been stripped away. The only thing that they are wrestling with now, Father, the thing I wrestled with before I came to faith, the thing we all wrestled with, Father, is can we accept the simple and profound truth of your word? Will it override our instincts and our flesh and the enemy's attempts to deceive us? Will it contend with our pride? Will it cause us to rethink who we are and our views of heaven and hell? 
Father, I pray that you would make that impression on the heart or hearts and that you would lead someone new, some, someone who is appointed for this day to hear and know the truth, not because it glorifies us and not because it benefits us in this life, not because of some selfish and personal and earthly desire, merely, Father, for the glory that it is to see your word reign in a heart. And that's what we pray for. Father, we're going to spend time remembering that death as you appointed to the celebration of the last meal, the last supper. And as we go through this, Father, let your spirit work. And I pray that if that work results in a response, that that response, Father, would be made publicly and that there would be an opportunity to hear it here through a private discussion with an elder or with me or through some other means, Father. I pray that you would encourage and, and drive that person to say whatever's on their hearts and not to leave without it, having the opportunity. But whatever may come today, Father, we glory in the day that is Easter. We glory in the opportunity to remember this sacrifice, the thing that sets us apart from the children of wrath and places us in the family of God. We praise your name, Father. We thank you for this morning. May your son receive the glory that is his. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.